Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Wednesday, January 19th, and today I'm joined by Dr. Roger Cliff, a research professor of Indo-Pacific Affairs at SSI. Roger, welcome. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. I've invited Roger to talk to us today to talk about uh, specifically the ramp up in tensions that we saw between China and Taiwan through most of 2021. Tensions across the strait intensified through most of last year. For example, we saw China increase its military flights into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Those flights more than doubled last year. And uh, Taipei and Beijing both issued warnings to each other about crossing red lines. So I thought this was a good time to get Roger's perspective on what has transpired recently and then to cast our eyes forward to the horizon to see what we might expect in 2022. So Roger, let me ask you first, why did things appear to increase? Why did tensions increase in 2021? Well, great question. And uh, like many things involving China, in order to really understand it, you have to uh, review a little bit of history. And so you wind up traveling backwards through time and answering many of these questions. But let me go back to 2016, actually, to answer this question. 2016 was the year for the first time in the history of Taiwan that both a president and a majority of legislators from Taiwan's pro-independence parties uh, were elected. And uh, I think this was probably important to Beijing because it signaled to Beijing that its policy of trying to encourage Taiwan to willingly and voluntarily unify with the mainland was not working. Now, they could have hoped that that was sort of a one-time aberration, um, but at the next round of elections in 2020, uh, basically the same thing happened. The pro-independence parties lost a little bit of their majority in Taiwan's legislature, but they still retained a majority. And uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the uh, president from that party, uh, was reelected for a second term. And so really it was towards the end of 2020 that we saw tension starting to increase in the Taiwan Strait, in particular, these incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone by mainland military aircraft, which reached uh, unprecedented levels in the last few months of 2020 and continued into 2021 at a much higher level than uh, we had previously seen. And that uh, is interpreted as an effort on the part of Beijing to exert military pressure on Taiwan to try to intimidate the government of Taiwan into uh, making concessions on the issue of uh, unification with the mainland 
and possibly enter into reunification talks with the mainland. So how did we end? How did things end in 2021 as now and as as we begin 2022 now? Are those tensions at the same level? Have they changed somewhat? What's your reading of what's been unfolding? Yeah, we seem to have kind of reached a new steady state. Uh, you know, the daily number of incursions on average is certainly higher than it than it used to be, but um, they're they're not at the crisis levels or alarming levels, shall we say. It was never really a crisis, but at, at some points in twenty late 2020, the numbers of aircraft flying into Taiwan's air defense identification zone for a period of several days was, was quite high. Things have kind of returned to a new normal, if you will, of uh, more frequent incursions, but there doesn't seem to be any further ramping up of these kinds of activities. Mainland has also been conducting other kinds of military exercises uh, over the past year in the vicinity of Taiwan and just kind of generally keeping the level of military tensions um, at an elevated but not alarming level. What's your sense then of why why that has occurred? Why have things kind of reached a... Uh... A steady state, maybe higher than what they were relative to a few years ago, but uh, is this possibly tied to the Olympics coming up? Yeah, I think the Olympics definitely have something to do with it. Uh, Beijing wants a very successful Winter Olympics. They um, and they are doing everything they can to ensure that, including locking down uh, millions of people in cities where they have very small outbreaks of uh, COVID nineteen occurring. Um, they want to make sure the the Olympics go off flawlessly. And uh, although the U.S. and some other countries have announced a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, uh, all of the athletes are still going, all of the corporate sponsors are still going to be there. Um, and so they certainly wouldn't want any type of crisis that would cause uh companies or, or or countries' Olympic delegations to start to have second thoughts about participating in the Olympics. Going beyond the Olympics, though, uh, there's another major event looming for uh, the Chinese leadership, which is their uh, uh, once-every-five-years uh, Congress of the Communist Party of China and this is an important event because, among other things, uh, it is when China's top party leaders and in the Chinese system is the leaders of the Communist Party who are the most powerful people in the country, not the leaders of the of the government. And this is when current leader Xi Jinping hopes to uh, be uh, reappointed for another for a third five year term as General Secretary of the Communist Party. And this would break a recent norm in which both of his uh, two immediate predecessors stepped down after serving two full terms. And so he's kind of running against the grain of, um, of the norms and expectations that have been created. And so for him, that probably means um, he has to be in an extra secure position when uh, the party Congress rolls around in October or November of next year, the date hasn't been set yet, uh, of this year, I'm sorry, uh, later this year. And so he definitely doesn't want any type of crisis um, in the international arena 
that could, uh, you know, have any chance of calling his leadership into question or um, creating kind of risk of major bad events occurring for China. Roger, I want to ask you a bit more about the substance of that party congress and specifically this effort by Xi to stick around for a third term. But tell us a bit more about the nuts and bolts of this thing. You mentioned that it's probably going to be this fall, but we don't know when exactly. Is that unusual? And who who shows up at this? How does it unfold? How long does it last? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, it lasts several days. Um, and so it starts out with um, the convocation of about 2,300 delegates from all across the country. These all have to be party members, but in many cases, um, they are not necessarily high-ranking or powerful party members. And uh, it's more of an honorary role that they play. And so they are selected by leaders higher up in the hierarchy and and they are told who to vote for and, and that sort of thing. And they will go to Beijing um, there will be meetings and discussions, sometimes revisions to the party constitution are approved at this time. But the most important thing they will do will be to elect what's called the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China, which is uh, two or three hundred um, senior party leaders. And these will be people who really are powerful, hold high level positions both in the party and the Chinese government. And although the the election will, you know, first of all, should be put in quotation marks, uh, it will largely be pro forma. And the people who are going to be uh, selected for the Central Committee have been decided in advance. Um, nonetheless, the Central Committee is a is a very powerful body because it, in turn, uh, after the Party Congress is over the first plenum of the 20th Central Committee of the Communist Party of China will be held, and its uh, primary order of business will be to elect the Politburo of uh, the Communist Party of China. These are the 25 top leaders, and then a Politburo Standing Committee, which in recent years has consisted of seven leaders. And of course, number one of all those is current leader Xi Jinping, who is currently the general secretary of the Communist Party and would expect to um, be reelected to that position and um, and to therefore head up the standing committee of the Politburo. But between now and then, there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, jostling and horse trading and positioning for influence that's going on amongst all the, the senior party members as they try to get their protégés or um, their their mentors uh, and patrons put into positions of power and influence. And um, so although Xi Jinping is expected to stay on for a third year, there's that's not guaranteed. And if there were to be any major upheaval or turmoil that could call into question his ability to could call into question his leadership and therefore his um, uh, his ability to stay on for a third term as as general secretary of the Communist Party. That's a good segue to, to talking about that issue specifically. <clears throat> it sounds like it's uh, going to be sort of front and center, if you will, for Beijing and uh, at this party congress in the fall. 
I think what's often lost on observers in the West of authoritarian regimes is that these regimes, just like we have in the West, have elements of politics. It's a different kind of politics, but there's still politicking that goes on between interest groups, clans, families, etc., uh, geographic regions perhaps. How do you foresee that playing out, the politics of this playing out in China at this party congress? Is it possible to read the tea leaves now and get a sense of how willing the party will be to approve of this unprecedented third term for Xi Jinping? Yeah, I think most uh, observers think that he is likely to um, to uh, stay on for a third term, that he's positioned enough of his supporters uh, at all levels within the Communist Party that uh, he will be able to pull this off. But just because people are ostensibly his supporters doesn't mean they won't turn on him um, if, if it's opportunistic for them. And uh, so... If someone thinks that he sees an opportunity to make a bid for the top spot in China, and the last time we saw this, in fact, was exactly 10 years ago when Xi Jinping had been tapped to be China's next general secretary, um, but uh, a a rival, Bo Xilai, um, who had been the governor of uh, of the province-sized city, province city of Chongqing, um, made a bid to, to become the top leader in China. In the event, Bo Xilai uh, failed and is now in prison, um, but he, he certainly made it interesting, and um, and that could happen again. I think it's less likely to happen this time around, just because Xi Jinping has been in power for ten years now. Um, and really, the only thing working against him is some people. Well, first of all, he's made many, many enemies, presumably with all of the purges that have occurred on his watch. Um, but also, there may be a general feeling that um, people should not be allowed to stay on uh, indefinitely. And if he can stay on for a third term, what's to stop him from being? general secretary for life and he's relatively young by chinese leader standards he's he will be 68 in the fall um so he could be around for quite some time to come um if uh, if that were to happen but i think probably the biggest variable uh actually is certainly foreign policy but she has some amount of control over that but probably the thing he's most worried about is the chinese economy if the Chinese economy were to experience a major uh, hiccup of some sort, uh, a financial meltdown um, because of uh, collapse of some of the property companies that's occurring right now, or something along those lines where um, people could call into question his uh, ability to appropriately and successfully manage the Chinese economy, that might provide an opening for for rivals to try to push him aside and take their own place at the top of the heap. Roger, let me ask you now to, to cast your gaze forward to the future a bit, and let's talk about what uh, the days, weeks, months, maybe even years after the Party Congress look like. Let's assume she wins uh, a third term as president, what does that mean? How do, how do you see things unfolding? Does that mean he's got a freer hand then, really, in, in dealing with Taiwan specifically? And, and 
maybe beyond that, what do you see uh, that will mean for U.S.-Chinese relations, broadly speaking? Yeah, I think it would mean that he has a free hand. And, and it might be kind of useful to look at the U.S. presidency uh, as an analogy. So, you know, in a president's first term, we say, oh, well, he's constrained in what he can do because he's, you know, he's positioning himself for re-election in four years. And then uh, and then when he's re-elected, then people kind of talk as if maybe he's got a two-year window, but then he's got to worry about the midterm elections, and then he's got to worry about his legacy. Well, if Xi Jinping breaks this 10-year norm, two terms, uh, five years each, there really will be no end in sight for him, I think. And that will will probably give him a freer hand to implement what he sees is the right uh, path forward for China's external policies as well as internal policies. And in fact, um, he certainly has been clamping down politically and economically within China. And over his time as China's top leader, we've seen a certainly a more assertive um, and maybe even somewhat belligerent uh, China over the past 10 years. And I uh, suspect that if he is able to stay on for you know, essentially indefinitely after uh, the, the upcoming party Congress, that we're likely to see more of that. And that could um, come in a variety of forms. So first of all, we've already seen um, that he had no regard for the agreement that China had signed with Britain back in 1984 over the return of Hong Kong. Um, he's completely violated the terms of that by uh, taking away the political and social freedoms of the people in Hong Kong. Uh, we could see uh, more uh, assertive or belligerent foreign policy with regard to China's territorial disputes in the South China Sea with a variety of countries, with Japan and the East China Sea and along the Indian border. And um, we could also see uh, China that's willing to put more overt military pressure on Taiwan and even possibly including an actual use of force. So um, I would expect if if she is able to stay on for an additional term that um, Tensions between the U.S. and China and really China and the world will likely continue to increase um, until, you know, probably until you know, either he is uh, steps down for whatever reason or things reach a crisis point. But I would just point out that, as I mentioned, there's always a chance that someone else could replace him. And if if that were to happen, I would have to say all bets are off. We could actually... I could conceive of someone who's even more hardline replacing Xi saying, no, you've been going too slow on the Taiwan issue. You haven't been assertive enough um, with regard to China taking its rightful place in the world. And so we could see an, uh, even a potentially an accelerated uh, effort to try to recapture Taiwan and resolve China's other territorial disputes. On the other hand, we could have a return to uh, policies much like his two immediate predecessors, which were uh, fairly liberal social policies, no true political reform, but so long as you didn't challenge the Chinese Communist Party, you could pretty much say and do almost anything you wanted to in China. And, um, and a, 
you know, shall we say an accommodationist foreign policy. It doesn't, that doesn't mean that they were weak or, um, or, uh, or, uh, made concessions easily, but simply that, uh, they would pick whatever path they thought would be most to China's benefits. You know, if they thought they could make a gain by being more assertive, they would do that. And if, if they thought it was necessary to, to make at least short-term concessions, they would do that. So I, um, those are kind of the three possible paths I can imagine for China after the Party Congress. So certainly for Taiwan, this this will be a momentous event, uh, one way or another, I think. Um, and, you know, so all may be quiet on the Taiwan front from now until the fall. That would be my expectation. But after the Party Congress in the months and in, in you know, maybe throughout 2023, after the Congress, we should keep a close eye on this space to see what happens. Roger, you've given us a lot to mull on here. It's clearly an area where a lot of additional attention and, and analysis will be necessary over the coming months and years. So we'll look forward to having you back on SSI Live. But for now, Dr. Roger Cliff, Research Professor of Indo-Pacific Affairs, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. And yeah, I hope to come back in a year and, and we can talk about how all my predictions were either wrong or right. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Roger. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.